Genesis 2, 7. Picking up from where we left off last week. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Man is a fascinating combination of both very ordinary and extraordinary ingredients. Man is a fascinating combination of both ordinary and extraordinary ingredients. So two parts to this sermon. Ordinary and extraordinary. Let's look at ordinary first. Here's where I get the word ordinary. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the earth. The fact that we are made from dust is not something that should cause us to be extremely proud of ourselves. We are formed, the scripture tells us, from the dust of the ground, and the scripture also informs us later in chapter 3 that it is to the dust that we shall return. What's dust? Some education. These are where word studies can be so helpful. Like, when we talk about the idea of biblical theology, biblical theology is when you take a word and you look at how it's used across the entirety of Scripture, and then you begin to, to learn some things about that word because you've looked at how the writers of Scripture have used it throughout the entirety of the canon. And there's a lot. A study of dust is fascinating. Dust symbolizes, I'm just going to show you three things from the scripture this morning. And, and all of that is to show us that we are a combination of ordinary ingredients and extraordinary ingredients. Dust shows us that we are formed from something that is extremely ordinary. What does dust symbolize? Well, the first thing we see dust symbolizing is it symbolizes something of, of little value. Now stick with me here, because we are going to talk about other ingredients that are in extraordinary. But I believe that the Lord wants us to see something in understanding and answering the, answering the question of who are we that we are made of something that's very ordinary. We are made, the scripture tells us, from dust. Do you remember the story of Abraham when God was preparing to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? So if, you're, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a while and you've read your Bible, you're familiar with the passage that I'm talking about. If you haven't been a Christian for a while and you haven't read your Bible in a while, you might not know what I'm talking about. But, but there was a time in Scripture where God was preparing to destroy this terrible city. 
cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham had friends and relatives in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he cried out to God. If, there, if you found like 50 good people there, would you destroy the whole place? And, and Abraham kept praying. And you remember in his prayer as he was pleading with God over Sodom, he said this, Now that I've been so bold to speak to God, even though I am nothing but dust and ashes. You see, this is a reference to dust. And do you remember Hannah? Do you remember Hannah wanted a, a child and she pleaded with God for a child? And in her prayer to God, she said this, God raises the poor from the dust and the needy from the ashes. Whenever the scripture speaks of an army and its complete defeat of the enemies, it often refers to the enemies being destroyed and being made like dust. In a time of mourning over the sins of Israel, Joshua, the leader, we're told, tore his clothes and fell face down in repentance to God and were told that the leaders, the religious leaders, sprinkled their heads with dust. Job uses the word 22 times to speak of how little man is. His famous reply, my ears had heard of you. My eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in what, church? In dust and ashes. So dust is intended to knock us off of our high horses. It's intended to knock us from our pedestals of pride. Matthew Henry says, dust is not nothing, but it's next to nothing. <laughs> so don't flatter yourself you're not made of better dust than the person that's sitting next to you. Nobody in here made from gold dust. Nobody in here made from diamond dust. Nobody made from pixie dust. We're all made from common dust. The kind you find under your bed when you haven't cleaned for a while the kind that you find in the ground. That's one symbolization of dust. Dust is also a symbolization. It also symbolizes frustration. Greatest example, the frustration of Satan in God's curse 
which we'll cover in, God, in chapter 3. After the fall, there's a curse. Satan, the serpent, is cursed. You perhaps remember the curse. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Snakes don't eat dust. Moses wasn't mistaken on that. Dust in the mouth is a symbol of humiliation. Dust in the mouth is a symbol of defeat. Before the fall, Satan was an incredibly intelligent, incredibly powerful being, chief of the angels. If you want to read more about the fall of Satan, you've got to go to Isaiah chapter 14. Somewhere along the line, though, Satan, who is incredibly intelligent and incredibly powerful, the chief of all the angels, had a supremely unintelligent thought. And his thought was that he could get along without God. He rebelled, but God brought him low, casting him out. That was Satan's first taste of dust. In Eden, he gets another taste of dust. He tempts the woman and the man to rebel against God, to choose to be independent of God, to try to deceive them into thinking that they too might get along without God. And I'm sure it was in his thought process that Adam and Eve would get treated the same way that he did. Only he must have been in for a disappointing surprise when he realizes that in the curse on Adam and Eve, God actually comes to them offering rescue and salvation and deliverance through the one that God tells us would crush the serpent's head. That's another taste of dust for Satan. And finally at the cross, the one who we can say supremely, primarily, was engineering the death of the Son of God, Satan, found to his dismay that he was actually instrumental in God's redemption plan for his people. Amen. Satan got another mouthful of dust at the cross. Dust is a symbol of defeat and frustration. So it is for Satan 
So it is for all who think they can get along without God. So dust, it symbolizes low value, low worth. It symbolizes frustration. But the Bible also teaches us something else about dust. It symbolizes death. When God judged Satan, he said, you'll eat dust all of your life. When God cursed the man, he said this in chapter 3, verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust shall you return. That is a reference to death. Even spoken prophetically about Christ. The psalmist wrote, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me down in the dust of death. That's Psalm 22. Dust symbolizes. Do you see this? Dust symbolizes a movement of increasing despair from littleness to frustration to death. John Calvin, I've been thinking about this quote a lot. Listen to this quote. Because I think this is where God wants to bring about some transformation for us. So we don't just want education. We don't want to just be educated on what dust is. And we'll hardly be inspired by how ordinary we are. But what does God want to do with making this, giving us this truth? What does he want to see happen in our lives? Well, I think John Calvin helps us here. He says, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense to the end that no one should exult beyond measure in his flesh. It's even better. He must be excessively stupid who does not here learn some humility. Charles Simpson was a great preacher. He used great analogies. Once he told this analogy, he was telling the story of a vet, of a veterinarian giving a horse a pill. Now, horses are big, and so the pills that you give them are really big. And it's hard. Think about it. How would you give a horse a pill if you had to give it one? You've never done, most of you have never done that. So how do you do it? Well, the way the vets typically do it is they get a little small piece of PVC pipe, and they, they, they use it like a straw. And you put the big pill inside this end of the PVC pipe, and then you put that into the horse's mouth, and then you blow. So Charles Simpson's telling the story of a vet giving a horse a pill, but the horse blew first. <laughs> the point is this. Sometimes God got a little something in it for you, too. I believe that God has, in, in showing us that we are dust, sometimes God got a little something for you. He wants to teach us something here. And it's something called humility. I wonder, 
you know, you get on your, your weather app and you can, measure, you can see air quality every day. That's a big deal with the fires in Canada where, where we can get a look at the air quality. And so you look on your, your, your weather app and it kind of gives you a measure, right, of the air quality. We can measure so many things now with these iPhones. I wish that we could measure the amount of pride in this room. Wouldn't it be scary? Wouldn't it be scary if you could kind of get an infrared map that lit up like the most proud, like here, here they are, they're sitting over here. They're adding so much pride into the room, you know, and we could see it. Yeah. We're laughing, but it's supposed to make you go, oh, because you know the infrared would be over you. We're so proud. We're proud. We're more proud than we think we are. We're proud towards one another. We're arrogant in our marriages. We're arrogant towards our kids. We're proud towards our parents. We're proud in staff meetings. We're proud on social media. We're proud of our accomplishments. We think we're better than people. We're proud towards those that are of lower socioeconomic status than us. We're proud towards those that are of higher socioeconomic status than us. We're proud towards people who look different than us. We're proud in our actions. Our actions reveal our pride. Our words reveal our pride. Our thoughts reveal our pride. Sometimes our pride reveals itself in arrogant, chest-beating, one-upmanship. Sometimes our pride reveals itself in our wallowing, self-pity. And I believe that the application or the, the transformation that God wants to bring in helping us to see that one of our ingredients, one of the ingredients that makes us up, that we're ordinary, that we're made from dust, is to give us humility, to cultivate humility towards God to cultivate humility towards one another. I wonder if the Spirit of God is searching our hearts now and convicting us of where we've been proud towards others. If He is, if He has done that, that's a good thing. 
Because now we can go to Christ once again and ask Him to forgive us of our pride and ask Him to help us to be humble. We are a fascinating combination of both ordinary and extraordinary ingredients. We hit ordinary, let's hit extraordinary. Go back to the verse. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. While we are made of dust, the Scripture tells us that God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. This is man's glory. God breathed some of his own breath into Adam, into you. This makes you special. This makes you extraordinary. So let's look at, the, at some of the what we can learn from this idea of breath and spirit. There's a connection between spirit and breath. In fact, the words in major languages of the Bible, Greek and Hebrew, and even of Latin, the words for breath and spirit are identical. In Latin, the word is spiritus. You see where we get the, the concept of spirit from the language of spiritus. But it also is breath-related. From the word spiritus, we get derivatives like aspire, inspire, perspire, expire. Aspire. That's to breathe in and make a better effort. Take a deep breath and we're going to do something. Inspire. That's when someone else breathes fresh ideas into you. It's what God did when he breathed life into Adam. Perspire. That's breathing through your skin. Expire, that's when you take your last breath. That's the Latin. The Greek word for spirit and breath is pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma. If you're into theology, you know that a study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is, is called pneumatology. But you also maybe are familiar with words like pneumonia or pneumatic. 
Pneumatic tools are tools that are operated by air. Pneumonia is a disease of your breath box, your lungs. The Hebrew word for spirit and breath is the same also. Ruach. You can't even say it without breathing out. Man is special, created by God, because God breathes some of his own breath into us. Man has a special relationship with God by virtue of his divine spirit. C.S. Lewis quote. There are no ordinary people. See, now what he's doing now is he's not focusing on the dust aspect of our ingredients. He's focusing on the extraordinary breathed life into aspect of the ingredient of every human. So he says there's no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things are mortal. What's he saying? Civilization, cultures, communities, arts, even the sun will die. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The person sitting next to you is an immortal. Their soul will exist in eternity either in immortal horror or in everlasting splendor. These are the people we live our lives with. These are the children you spend your time with. This is the spouse that you vacation with. This is the person that you pick up for work and commute together with. They are immortal. Are we viewing one another? I wonder if the Lord wants to help us to rightly value people, the people that he's placed in our lives. And I think the application falls in two ways here. One, let's deal with the everlasting splendor. The everlasting splendor should make us humble towards one another. It goes back to the first point of, uh, of embracing humility and cultivating humility. If the person sitting next to you is actually going to shine gloriously for all of eternity, then is your actions and treatment of them in keeping in line with who they are? So then let's think about immortal horror. How could, that, how could we make application here? Well, it's helpful every once in a while to remember that your neighbor, perhaps, or a family loved one who doesn't know Jesus, who, haven't, who hasn't yet made a decision to repent and believe in Christ, is going to suffer everlasting judgment and horror. Shouldn't a recognition 
that all human beings have God breathed life into them and are headed to one of two places motivate us to be more concerned about the state of lost people than we oftentimes are. Death always gets you thinking. One day death will come to all of us. And that moment, at that moment, whether we exist as immortal horrors or in everlasting splendor, will make that the most important question of life, won't it? Church, I want us and I want myself to be stirred, to be concerned about people who don't know Jesus. If we really believe this, if we really believe what we're reading here in the scriptures, then I wonder if it would motivate us to be more on the task of the mission Jesus has left us with, which is to, to, to make disciples of all nations. We should be praying for people like the Hartzels and the Goins and Christie and, and others that, that we've partnered with to help make disciples in other contexts, in hard places. But we should also be concerned about our neighbors who don't know Jesus, our co-workers who don't know Jesus. Perhaps God, by His Spirit, would motivate us in a fresh way by reminding us that we are made of extraordinary ingredients. Now, even though we are extraordinary, there was a fall. So we know that this is how God made us, formed the man of the dust, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then we fell to our sorrow. We rebelled against our creator. And that certainly affected the image of God in us. So now, because of the, the nature of sin, because we are all born into sin, we are thoroughly depraved. What that means is we can't do any good to earn a, 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 sal, a salvation standing, a justified standing before God. We can't do that on our own now. We need a Savior. We can't understand truth now because of the fall, because we're in sin. We're born into sin. We can't understand even the truth of God's Word unless we're aided by the Spirit of God. That's Romans 3. Paul tried to explain this real clear to us. Let me just read this to you. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. This is what Paul writes. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, so even though we are made, even though we are made of some extraordinary ingredients, the breath of God within us, He breathed life into us and sustains us, we still come back to this idea that there's no one who can stand before God. There's no one who's righteous. We've all turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. This is what Jesus was trying to get across to Nicodemus. 
in his discussion with him that you perhaps remember when we studied John. Man can't seek God. God seeks man. You can't get to God on your own. God sent Jesus to come get you. This is what we say over and over again. Jesus told Nicodemus, he kind of confused the religious, the, the, the highly educated religious leader. He confused him by telling him, you got to be born again. He said, you must be born again. That was John 3. I'll read it to you. John 3, verses 5 and 6. You can write it down. You can look at it later. But I'll read this part to you. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Jesus answered. So Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Has he got to enter into his mom a second time? How's that going to go? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying that a man must be born again of God, just as Adam was born of God originally. How was Adam born of God originally? God breathed life into him. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Fallen man gives birth to fallen man. But God gives new life through his spirit that he breathes into us when we become Christians. Just like he breathed into Adam, he breathes into us. And without that rebirth, without being born again, Jesus says, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not see the kingdom of God. All right, let's look at the last phrase. And then we'll move. We're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to do that in just a moment. Look at the last phrase of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, that's the ordinary ingredients, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, that's the extraordinary ingredients. Man's a fascinating combination of, of ordinary and extraordinary ingredients. But then it says, and the man became a living creature. We know that we depend upon God for physical life. And for spiritual life, you have to come to God. He's the only one that gives it. You can't get spiritual life apart from God. So you, you don't live physically apart from God, and you can't live spiritually apart from God. Isaiah 2.22, why trust in man who has only one breath, basically I'm paraphrasing, why trust in man who has only one breath in his nostrils at a time? Trust God. His breath is inexhaustible. We can only receive the breath of God one breath at a time. Try it. Suck in all you can right now and hold it. We could do a little competition. See who could hold it the longest. But at some point, you're going to have to take another breath. Or you're going to die. What's that teach us? You are utterly and totally dependent upon God. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, who's that? 
Adam, became a living being. Where'd Paul get that? Genesis 2, 7. And the man became a living being, a living creature. From breath received from God. But then he says, Jesus is the last Adam, the life-giving spirit. See your Bible starting to fit together? We can only live physically and spiritually as we turn to Jesus. Are you turning to Jesus? Are you pressing into Jesus? Today, for some, is the day of salvation. Because when death comes, it's too late. Now, while you got the time, come to Jesus. The one who is able to give eternal life and find yourself accepted in Christ. Man, fascinating combination of both ordinary and extraordinary ingredients. The ordinary should produce humility in us. The extraordinary should cause us to stand in awe and wonder and help us to be more evangelistically mission-minded towards those immortals who don't know Jesus. And finally, it's a reminder to us that we are totally dependent upon God for our physical lives and our spiritual lives. Hasn't God been incredibly good to us? This fascinating creature of his, a combination of ordinary and extraordinary ingredients. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your work among us. Thank you for how you teach us from your word. Lord, I pray that you would produce humility in each of us. And, and Lord, I pray that you would help us, even now as we celebrate and remember your death upon the cross, your broken body and your blood poured out for us that we might have eternal life in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.